Welcome to The Artiste, a podcast series where I delve into the life and craft of an artiste. I'm your host, Luke Gibson. My guest today is a super talented actor, writer and producer, covering a wide range of genres in film, TV and theatre. He also became in 2005 the second largest quiz or game show winner in Australian TV history at that time. Add to that the creation of an iPhone app and the release of an e-book as an author, well, this guest has had an amazingly fascinating and multi-layered career. Welcome to the show, Stephen Hall. Thank you very much, Luke. What a lovely introduction. You like that one? Yeah, that was great. It's all the truth. Um, yeah, yeah, nicely put. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot to start off with. Yes, you do. But I'm going to anyway. Yes. I'm going to test your 80s music trivia knowledge. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and... Um, I'm only going to accept your first answer, Mm -hmm. and we'll move on to the next one. Good. Bring it on. You don't scare me. Are we ready? Yes, sir. Here we go. The 1984 hit by the Eurogliders told us heaven must be where? (laughs) There. It's just got to be there. Correct. Take On Me was the biggest 80s hit by the group AHA. Which country did they hail from? Norway. Beautiful. What kind of dance did Men Without Hats perform? The safety dance. Sydney band The Radiators had one of their biggest hits with a cover of which Beatles song? Oh, darling. Incorrect. Revolution. Big Girls was a hit in 1984 by the electric Who? Pandas. Correct. What time of the day did Corey Hart wear his sunglasses? Uh, that's a trick question because it wasn't day, it was night. He wears his sunglasses at night. <laughs> Correct. Yes. The greatest musician of all time released an album based on the movie soundtrack of the same name, Purple Rain. At this stage of his career, he performed under Prince and the what? Is it Prince and the Revolution? Correct. Very. And last question. Hmm. Which music chain in the 80s provided free in-store weekly handouts of the top 40 charts? Brushes. Correct. (sighs) Very nice. And this segues very nicely into my big thing is 80s music. I love 80s music, especially Australian 80s music. I did the Brushes top 40 countdown. I I put them in a scrapbook. Wow. There is... That's my thing. Mm. But you are a guy who is so smart, you know not just a lot about one subject, you know a lot about every subject. How did that happen? How did your knowledge base start from at what age and how did you do it? Well, uh, I think it it helps to just be curious about... Most things. I do remember uh, in in regard to quiz shows, we grew up watching Sale of the Century, which was on Australian TV on Channel 9, 7 o'clock weeknights for many years from 1981, I think. So we used to watch it and used to play along at home and uh, hitting the um, armrest of the uh, armchair as a buzzer. and, uh, (laughs) And I also used to just 
I used to read those books of lists and Guinness Book of Records as a kid before the internet and uh, then later on in adult life uh, with a friend of mine um, who I'd done a fair bit of comedy with, we started doing pub trivia nights and so for a number of years there we had to come up with and write and and deliver uh, 20 questions or more a week and so you've always got your head stuck in... um, just absorbing popular culture, absorbing the newspaper. The newspaper quizzes are all very, very good, but it was sort of our job. And so, but it's also a hobby because it was fascinating. And um, so you're always thinking like a question writer, and that, uh, and it's just being endlessly curious, I think, and and just loving stumbling across a trivial fact. You go, wow, that's really cool. I did not know that. Interesting. And Kerry Young, we've spoken about him um, in a previous episode. He was a big champion. Were these kind of champions who won the showcase, were they kind of, in your um, your opinion, like rock stars at the time? Yeah, I remember Yeah, I remember watching Quizmaster Kerry Young, to give him his full title, um, <laughs> when I was a teenager, and he was just unstoppable. He, mm. Sale of the Century, kept having him back and again and again and again, and, and he kept on winning these Champions of Champions tournaments and... Um, he was, yeah, he was unassailable, and I think he was a former boxer, but I think he took quizzing very seriously and surrounded himself with encyclopedia back in the day and reference books, you know, all over the place, and it stood him in good stead, and he was just unstoppable back then, yeah. So your journey then from Sail of the Century and through its um, various uh, incarnations, which really it had a little bit of time off and then it came back as Temptation. Yep. You were involved as a contestant on Temptation. How did that all come about? Well, uh, that the genesis of that is back in Sale of the Century days because I did uh, apply to go on Sale of the Century when I grew up and got old enough. I, I auditioned in 1994 and went through all the tests and uh, failed. And then I went through it again and I got through, did the interview, got on the show and played not very well and got nothing apart from the board game and stick pin from Germani Jewelry. Which you're still playing with. And I'm wearing the stick pin today. <laughs> As you can see, it's, it's faded a little over the years. Did you, did you not have the diamond set memento from Bruce and Walsh? Um, no, I, I don't think so. But <laughs> I don't have the diamond set memento from Bruce and Walsh. Um, but I, then, uh, if you if you go on the show and you're unsuccessful, you're allowed to reapply. And, and after I think they say six months or something, because you know there's a finite number of people. Mm. I did reapply. I did go back on five years later in 1999. And I'd learned a bit since then. I'd watched the show a bit since then. I'd practised and honed my skills a bit since then. So I went on and I was a bit better prepared, but I still lost. And I lost by 15 bucks, I think. Right. And I got another board game and another diamond set stick pin from Jamani Jewelry. Did you re-gift them? No. I don't know what happened. Oh, I, no, I, I think oh, I might have re-gifted the board game to okay, someone. Okay, good. Yeah, because I already had one. Yeah. And um, the stick pin I do still have at home. I think it's stuck in my cork board and I just <laughs> bought on, on the wall as a reminder of what might have been. Um, and then, so 90, 94, no dice. 99, no dice. And then in 2001, I think the show came to an end and I thought, oh, well, that's that. But then it came back in 2005 under the new title, Temptation. Mm. And by this stage, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll go, I'll go again, I'll go again. By this stage, I'd had, I'd been doing the trivia nights. I'd, I'd done a bit of work in TV, uh, behind the scenes, writing questions and uh, on various shows. And I was really uh, thinking a lot more like a question writer. When it came along, I wasn't employed by anyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I applied and I got on 
fairly soon, like fairly quickly in between auditioning, d- doing all right in the test, getting the interview and going on. And uh, I was living in Sydney at the time, having lived in Melbourne all my life, and so they had to fly me down, which was quite nice. But uh, mm. uh, yeah, and it was a different story that time. I was much more on it this time around, and I'd really done loads of training. And so the journey then from when you got on the show until you won the showcase, how many episodes did that take? Uh, the way the show was set up then, I had to win seven in a row. Um, there's uh, five shows in a week. They record five on a record day. So that what they, the recording schedule then was um, they record on a Tuesday, five episodes, a Wednesday, five episodes, then have a fortnight break, and then Tuesday, five episodes, Wednesday, five episodes, and so on. And so I got on episode, I think, yeah, episode two of the Wednesday. So I won for the viewers at home, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Mm. And so I had to come back and win three more to get everything. Right. yep. And there was a two-week gap. Okay. Between, what was, do you do in that time? Yeah, you try not to freak out and you try not to think about it and you um, you try to try unsuccessfully to put it out of your mind and you do what you normally do. Uh, I did get – I bought a globe of the world and every time I would walk past it I would just sort of – you know, clock where something is or, you know, just do a little spin and, you know, put my finger somewhere. Oh, that's that that city belongs in that country. Okay, good. Right. I also looked up the Time magazine person of the year lists to familiarise myself with them for the uh, who am I questions. Yes. Because one of, the, one of the questions in the show is they give you clues that start off very hard and, and they're quite valuable and, and they're famous people but sometimes they're famous but not that famous. Okay. So that's a, a pretty good starting point, and that did stand me in good stead for one of the questions in my final game, so that wasn't wasted time. How close did you come to losing in any of those seven episodes? Um, the first night was, I think, the closest when you know I was coming in cold and beating the carryover champ that they had there. The final night... No- there were pretty healthy margins through, throughout the rest of the night. I was sort of quite – I played quite aggressively and quite quite a fast game and I didn't buy anything from the gift shop to reduce my score and I was quite, you know, single-minded about it. The last night um, I got $15 on the fame game and I won in the end by $15. Wow. So if I hadn't got that, it would have been a tiebreaker when <laughs> I was playing for absolutely everything. So oh. that <laughs> doesn't bear thinking about so episode seven, you're sitting there as you're being announced on the show. Your palms are sweating. What is going through your head right at that point in time? I'm just trying to breathe and I'm just trying to tell myself, just another show, just keep doing what you've been doing. Just keep doing what you've been doing and um, just focus in, don't think of the big picture. And uh, my mantra when I was doing the show, when I was going all the way through, was to just focus intently on the questions that are being asked to look really, really intently at the host, Ed Phillips, and particularly to hone in on his mouth and look at his mouth and the words coming out because sometimes you can even predict what the next word will be if you're focusing on... And just the Matt Parkinson gave me a very good bit of advice and it was just think that the questions are all for you. There's no one else there. It's just for you and he's throwing balls at you. Some you'll catch, some you'll drop, but don't look at the ones on the ground. Just, I know the next one, I know the next one. So my mantra was always, I know the next one, I know the next one, which is a really good thing to keep your mind sort of forward and anticipatory rather than backward looking and regretful and flustered. Mm. Do you remember the last question you answered before you won that night? Yep. 
What was it? <laughs> I do. Uh, it was this. In the, the very last part of the game is the mad minute, and yes. and so it's very fast paced. And my opponent, my main opponent, was a man called Drew, and he was he was really aggressive. He really came to win, and he was buzzing in really quickly and beating me uh, to the buzzer. But then finding that he'd buzzed in too early and not able to answer, but he was just aggressively sort of locking me out. And I do remember the question that was asked on the siren was. Um, Pride in the group that one belongs to is known as esprit de what? And I said esprit de corps as as the buzzer, as the siren went. So, yeah, that is locked in my mind, that, <laughs> that question. Yes. And you said you weren't working at that time. So the, um, the cash and prize injection... Uh, would have helped your family situation somewhat. How how did that change your life? It was hugely life-changing, uh, of course. Um, I'm sorry to say I fritted it all the way on a house. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, very impulsive of me. Um, no, it, it did change everything. And uh, along the way, I won sort of various prizes and they kept being delivered and it was just bizarre <laughs> you know there's delivery for you oh, yes thanks very much don't mind if it oh a telescope oh okay a swarovski vase yes i, I would have bought one anyway <laughs> all these it was like sort of a weird christmas uh and um yeah i, I was able to help out my sister and my mum and uh we, there was one um uh, one one of the prizes in the showcase was a holiday to Canada and um, we were uh, expecting our daughter at the time so, and they didn't take kids so I was able to give that to my mum and my sister so they took that. Brilliant. And, yeah, it was really great and uh, yeah, it was it, yeah, life-changing and it has everything since then has been different because of that. Wow. The whole situation, of course, how could it not be? Yeah. And do people recognise you for being the smart guy that won on Temptation? Is Is there a little bit of that? Not really, although, I mean, I'm sort of, having said that, since 2013, I've been running the blog, howtowingameshows.com, mm, which mm. is asking for it, I guess. But um, that seemed like a good idea because I, after Temptation, I went on another one. And also I'd known, I knew and do know quite a few people in the industry, so I was able to get, and am, am able to get interviews with people who've worked on game shows and so on. Yes. Um, so I just thought... I have a bit of a, an intri- a unique perspective and I can share and help people who are keen to go on other ones. But generally, no, I don't get recognised for that. It was a long time ago now. It was two, yeah. 2005. Yeah, wow. Mm. Now, let's move on to your acting work. What what acting training did you do? I really want to talk about Romper Stomper because was that your one of your first roles on the big screen? Yeah, it was It was my first role on the, on the big screen, yes. Mm. I'd, I'd done um, – by that stage I'd done – a few little TV bits and pieces. Um, when I left school, I got an agent and did a few commercials and popped up in Neighbours and Flying Doctors. Uh, but uh, that was an odd audition for a few films. But that was the first film I, I got. And I was, what was I? When I was like 21, 22, I think. Right. Um, but in terms of training, I uh, I was I went to La Trobe University and I studied drama, but that's not a vocational thing. That's more of an academic mm. uh, course, really, rather than you know preparing you for the industry. I didn't go to NIDA or VCA. I, I was very keenly involved in amateur theatre when I was a kid. Yes, uh, all the way through from being about eight years old to 
you know, being a teenager and stuff. I worked actually at Heidelberg Theatre Company with um, this young, obscure actor called Ben Mendelssohn. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. No. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, we were contemporaries. I remember I was in a, a Heidelberg Theatre Company Christmas review with him in 1983 or 1984, I think. Um, and he was always quite, quite a character, quite a character, quite sort of outrageous and very funny. So Romper Stomper as a first film experience, yes. what was that like for you? Um, it was cool, but and it was all encompassing. I didn't quite realize sort of. I didn't quite realize how not big my part was compared to others. But I had more lines. I had some lines, and <laughs> that I, was unexpected. It was because I, I went along there. I was in. I was, had like I think two days. And all of the gang, the boys, were there for the full three or four weeks or whatever it was. And they hung out together. They went out together at night, frightening people. Um, <laughs> and they really bonded and they were rough and tumble, roughhousing around. And they all looked at similar. And um, I come in there and I'm wearing a snug little sailor suit. <laughs> and um, so I did feel a bit like the odd one out. Yes. And I do remember one, one of the actors... Uh, James McKenna, his name was. He plays a character called Bubs. He's the youngest. He's a kid, essentially. And in the film, he's the youngest member of the gang. And um, Russell Crowe's character sends him out to be, you're my scout. And he goes and keeps lookout and things like that. And he, uh, I do remember him at lunch getting me in a headlock <laughs> and not letting go. And it was really quite difficult to get out. And it, was, it, it, it went beyond amusing to quite annoying. And I wanted to hit him. <laughs> I, I very much wanted to hit him. Boy, did I want to hit him. Um, I think eventually he relented, but it was sort of, it was beyond a joke. It was one of those things, okay, okay, cut on your champ, you've had your fun. So were you or they encouraged to continue their parts when the camera stopped rolling? I think they just naturally did it. I think they, and because it was so intense, of course, and, and the action of the film, and they are or these brothers in arms, um, and they are all, and we were all sort of young, testosterone-filled young men. Um, again, the snug little sailor suit put, put a bit of a dampener on mine. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, they sort of, and it, it can be very seductive when you, you know, I've, I was in a, um, a TV movie where I was in a, uh, we're a platoon of soldiers going around through the jungle, and there's real male bonding that goes on, and it, it does, you know, they, these are your brothers in arms, even mm. though it's all just... Um, not the real real deal, but you do feel the bond, and it's you know it, it's quite uh, seductive to 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 be part of the gang. Monty Python. No, they weren't in Romper Stomper. <laughs> I could tick. Um, <laughs> Just checking. Monty Python. How influential were they in your youth um, growing up? You've had a lot to do with them in your adult life. So how did you come across them and, and how did that continue until you were, first of all, involved in Spam a lot in 2007 and Faulty Towers, the stage show, um, just a few years ago? Mm. Um, I think it was my dad who introduced me to Monty Python. My dad was English and um, a big fan of uh, the English humour and he introduced me to Benny Hill and Monty Python and um, I think Are You Being Served, all, all the uh, two Ronnies, all of those things that were on our TV screens at the time. Although Flying Circus I think was on pretty late. Uh, I do remember he took me and oh, I don't think he would have taken my sister. She was four, I was six. He took me to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail when I was six and that's too young. <laughs> 
Right. That's too young. Okay. A, a man gets his arms and legs chopped off. Yes. And um, there's jokes about oral sex, for goodness sakes. And you were six. And I was six. Um, and I did, I remember being a bit sort of confused and frightened, but I did also understand that the knight getting his arms and legs chopped off was like a cartoon. It wasn't real. Okay. It was, you know, like stuff that happens to Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner and all those sorts of things. Sure. But, um, yeah, I, I, as a parent, I wouldn't take a six-year-old <laughs> to, to see that film. Um, he also took me to see Life of Brian in 1979, so I was, what was I, 10 then, so still yes. too young. Yes, Still too young. Um, but uh, so I think where that, that's where that comes from, and I, I've sort of grown up being quite an anglophile all the way through, um, Young Ones and Smith and & Jones and Not the Nine O'Clock News and mm. um, With Null and I and uh, I, I can go on and on. Um and uh, he you know, he left when I was six, so um, he wasn't part of our lives after that. But uh, yeah, that that stuck with me, and I sort of, you know, I think I do have that sort of English humour sensibility more perhaps than others. So when you had the opportunity to audition for Spamalot, mm. what what did you think? Did you think this is a, a dream role? Did you think um, I really have to be part of this? I have to get the gig. What what were your thoughts? Yes, all of the above, and I, I'd, I'd sort of we did. Was it two thousand seven? Yeah, we, of course we had the internet. So I was I was following it, and I I had seen that it it worked, and it was and it had it had Tim Curry and Hank Azaria and um, David Hyde Pierce on on Broadway, and it was a hit, and people were loving it. And it was selling out, and Eric Idle had you know he'd finally sort of cracked it, you know, because Eric Idle has tried a number of things over the years and, and this, he, he really got the magic formula mm. with, in terms of um, transforming the Python legacy or just sort of evolving it, I guess, or repurposing it. Um, and it, it ticked all the boxes and I just thought, wow. And then when I heard that it was coming to Australia, um, I, you know, I went and got the soundtrack and um, found out as much as I could about it and... Uh, um, prepared for the audition by, you know, you had to prepare a song as you often do. So I um, prepared Dentist from Little Shop of Horrors. Right, okay. Uh, but I did it in an English accent. <laughs> and um, with all the acting and, you know, being, jumping around and being the patient as well as the dentist, as well as as well as the backup singer. Anyway. Did you direct yourself? Yeah. 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 Good. Uh, good. And um, yeah, that, that sort of worked. And then I did the audition scenes and, and it, I was just... It was one of those things where it was quite high stakes because I mm. really, 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 really wanted it. But also, um, and this is something that had I, yes, I had done Temptation by then. And so th- there was some really valuable lessons in there about not wanting something so much that you get in your own way. Right. And so it's about, you know, you can do this, access these skills that you need to bust out here and now and just... The other thing too, it's really easy to forget, but auditioning can be really fun. Really? Not many yeah. people say that. No, no. I, and I understand entirely why they don't because if uh, the people who are auditioning you, auditioning you are unkind, then it's horrible. Yes. Um, and it's intimidating and they're cold and they're mean and they're dismissive and it doesn't do anyone any favours because I've been on both sides of the auditioning table and mm. when you want to see people, you want people to come in and give you their best and you want them to be relaxed and you know how hard it is and how intimidating it can be so you want them to be able to open up. Um, so, yeah, it was. I really thought if I enjoy this, they'll enjoy it and, um, and also 
you know, I just did, I did my homework. I knew it all backwards and, and you know, I just was super well prepared and went in and, and um, it worked. So when you got the call from your agent, mm. um, you got the gig. Yeah. What did you, th- what did you say? What did you do? Um, I don't, I don't remember that exact moment. I was very, I, I, I was very happy. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. I went out and I thought, oh, I've got to get a bottle of something to celebrate. <laughs> I've got nothing in the house. So I went out and went to the bottle shop and I forgot to shut the front door. And um, I went to the bottle shop and got a bottle of something to celebrate and I got home and the front door was wide open and we hadn't been burgled, so that was <laughs> good. But I thought, yeah, that was a little careless. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, is that possibly the most careless thing you've done in your whole life? Oh, no. No. <laughs> no. After heaps more things, careless, much more I careless. I thought you were so that. sensible. No. Okay, I've no. got you all wrong. No, you've got me all wrong. So that run ran for how many shows? Um, Spamalot went from 2007 to the start of 2008. It was about 150 or something like that. It was it was scheduled to go and tour uh to Sydney and then beyond, but um, box office wasn't um, good enough for that. So why? Yeah. Why was it too smart? Was it no? Well, no. Why? How can you put a reason on that? Oh uh, well, the standard reason for disgruntled actors is that no, it wasn't publicised right. It wasn't publicised right. Publicity marketing, and I tend to I tend to be of that opinion. We opened around the same time as uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And okay. There were banners all over town, and, and the cast would show up to every everything and anything, every social event, and they'd show up. They were at the Melbourne Cup, and um, we were just sort of not getting. We would have gladly done it. We would have, and you know, showed up at the Melbourne Cup with banging our coconuts together. You know, yes. There's so many sort of opportunities to get the silliness of Spamalot out there, um, and people running around in costume, and and we would have we would have done anything and everything, but. Uh, I think, yeah, because it was it was a big hit, and once people know what it is, and they they love it. Once people get in the door, they love it. it we were on trams, like they, but they had the cartoon drawing of um, King Arthur and the knights peeking over the top of a cloud, and one of the people in the car said, "I had friends come to see it. They thought they were coming to see an animated movie." So, really? Okay. What does that tell you? Yeah, okay. Wow, that says a lot, doesn't it? Mm. Were you disappointed when it finished so early? Very. Yeah, very, very. Uh, it was, um, oh, yeah, we were all very disappointed. And uh, I remember saying for the next year, oh, I'd still be there if it was still going. I'd loved it. I loved it. It was uh, It was wonderful. Because, um, you know, it was eight, eight shows a week. and But the role that I had, I was four different characters and you, you're always running and you're changing from one to the other to the other. I get to fly around on stage, all sorts of things. It was fantastic. I didn't grow up with any kind of Monty Python, right. yet Yet I came along to the show. You got me a, a ticket, thank you, for the fr- oh, right. friends and family. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I don't know how many you gave away, but uh, it was. I had a great night out at the theatre. Yeah, great. And It's I, pretty fun, isn't it? Well, it is. And look, you don't need to be a fan necessarily no. to enjoy it. It's a good... You can't not have a good time. Yeah. yeah. Was John Cleese involved at all or did you meet him at that time of Spamalot? No, it was Eric Idle's project uh, and he did come out for the opening uh, so we did get to meet did get to meet Eric uh, and um, he came into my dressing room and said hello and gave me a big hug and I'm just sort of melting this is Eric Idle for God's mm. sake um, and uh, so yeah he came out he came out a couple of times um, once I think in January um, so to be on stage at opening night with 
one of the pythons there sort of singing our praises and he you know he complimented me on the french taunter and um he oh geez i mean this sort of thank you i'm done yeah <laughs> it's one of those moments it won't get any better than this yeah yeah so then we segue nicely into faulty towers which was you know almost a decade later how did were you it's almost like you were um i won't say born to do that part but uh the physicality um, were you headhunted uh, to a degree or did you have to do an audition like everyone else? Um, when did you meet John Cleese for the first time as part of that? Um, well, uh, it was, it was um, I had to audition like everyone else. They said, I got an email from my agent one day saying, this has come up, uh, John Cleese is adapting Faulty Towers into a stage show, he wants to start it here. Um, naturally we thought of you so we suggested you to audition for it and... Um, so can you are you interested yeah yes please hell yeah yes please and uh so please you know here's the audition here's the th- bits you have to learn and there were a few scenes from the tv show because the it, this, the play was still a work in progress so um yeah auditioned here in melbourne doing three or four scenes for the director and the resident director and then there was a second round they got me back the next day to do the same thing again with a different sybil and then a week or two after that, there were the final round of auditions up in Sydney, which was uh, a full day from 10 till 6, and there were about seven or eight Basils, four or five Manuels, four or five Pollies, various uh, Majors and Mrs Richardses and various <laughs> Sibyls, uh, all wandering around in the foyer. Um, and so that was a marathon, and that was the day when he came out, uh, or he had come out to you know, be across the final contenders. And... Uh, that that was a, that was a I had eight scenes to learn I think and when you arrived at the start of the day they said look we're not sure how it's going to go we'll pair you in different groupings to see who works well with who and uh, so we would be pacing up and down in the foyer of the theatre and then going in in various configurations when we were called to do our scenes and so that's one of those real energy management shows and I was thinking back to Temptation again about. Okay, you've got this break in between. Um, just stay relaxed but focused and be ready to bring your A-game at the drop of a hat. and Keep it cool. Yeah. And one thing that I was doing was in the foyer, because there are quite a few actors, like 20 actors maybe in total, and a few of them are sitting around and chatting and stuff, but I, I couldn't do that. I just um, uh, had my iPod with me and I put my earbuds in, even when I wasn't playing any music, just as a signal to say, look, I'm, I'm not really up for a chat. No, I just good focus on this and um i got in there and when i'm doing stuff with blazy who eventually got sybil um blazy best sydney actor yes um and we hear john laughing and it's this great rolling wheezy laugh and uh, oh there's no sweeter sound <laughs> so you're doing the rehearsals the rehearsal period what four weeks generally yep. um how how do you compute in your head that you are playing this legendary character and you're having to do that in front of him um ultimately not necessarily in rehearsals but i would assume opening night yeah he he was there for the last 10 days or so of rehearsals um so but before that it was working it all up and and the choreography was just there's so much to learn you know i'm sort of hardly ever off stage and there's so many lines and there's so many actions to go with the lines and it has to be just so and it has to be fast it has to be really fast and uh I've sort of, I've sort of. They're looking to me to sort of drive the bus a bit because mm. I'm 
Basil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was some of the hardest work I've ever done. And uh, we, when in, in interviews John would say that we weren't looking for people who were doing impressions of the characters. We had people at the early auditions who came in and did a, an, an impression of Basil and we showed them the door pretty quickly and they thought that they would get it. But um, he wanted people who were different enough and I can't tell you how different is too different or mm. how similar is too similar, but one of the things that he said about me is that he liked the fact that I don't look like him. Okay. So I was a bit of a departure. There was another fantastic actor and it was down to me and him and he looked a lot like Basil. Right. And when I saw him in the foyer on audition day, I thought, that's that then. (laughs) That's that then. Oh, well, I got close. Yep. Let Uh, me go and pay for the parking ticket and get out of here. That's right. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, and he said, (laughs) he he would say in interviews that um, Blasey and I, um, they didn't want people who were doing just you know, who were trying to mimic the original characters and they brought their own fresh spin to it. And I looked at Blazy and Blazy looked at me and we said, I thought we were mimicking the characters. <laughs> okay, yep, yep, exactly, John. That's what I was thinking. You had him fooled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, in comparison with Spamalot, this mm. this particular run of Faulty Towers was, would you call it a smash success? Um, every, I, well... Yeah, it, yeah, it was actually because because it's not a musical. Yes, it's, it's a straight play, it's a straight commercial comedy play, and to do what we did, which was a national tour, uh, as the producer said, uh, Louise Withers, to do what we did is bloody impressive, and she would know these things. So yeah, we we played in Sydney, then Melbourne, then Adelaide, Perth, and Brisbane, and. Uh, Audiences across the board really, really enjoyed it. And, oh, gee, there was so much laughter and it was just such a very happy experience. And we had people, um, a lot of people came on Father's Day bringing their dads right. and um, bringing their sons. And one of the lovely things after the show, we saw three generations, a grandfather, a father mm. and a son who all really, really enjoyed the show. Um because um, Basil's appalling behaviour <laughs> transcends generations. <laughs> <laughs> and John Cleese, is he as charismatic, um, as funny, as genuine as he appears to an ordinary person? Yeah, yeah, he he is. Well, I mean, my experience with him is probably not that typical because I'm, you know, doing this role and he's chosen me to do it and stuff. Mm, so my relationship mm. with him is not typical. But, uh, yeah, he's. I found him just lovely and charming and really really nice and uh um uh, as as i said to him i just i wish he was my dad wow yeah that's a massive call yeah yeah no i i I really enjoyed spending time with him and uh he's and and he's he's very uh he's quite open to things and quite curious uh, which is good when you're in your 70s not many people not, not, not everyone is and so and he's still very happy to be silly and playful, and uh, and he's very curious about people and what people have to say and everyone's stories. And uh, yeah, he's a good uh, good listener and a very good laugher. It sounds like he's going to injure himself when he laughs. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now while we're still on the stage, you've developed a couple of different um, uh, different shows. Bondorama, yes, two thousand eleven. Every Bond show performed by you and co-written by you. How did that all come about? Well, that was Michael Ward's brainchild. And Michael Ward and I, uh, Michael Ward's a writer and performer and um, 
uh, comedy writer here in Melbourne, and uh, he and I did a show in the fest- comedy festival in two thousand and one. We met, first met writing for Full Frontal back in the late nineties, and um, hit it off and become very good friends. And uh, so he and I firstly wrote this show in the comedy festival for two thousand and one called "I Said I Said." And for a number of years, he had the idea of of every James Bond film live on stage in an hour and a bit. Uh, And so he he was the driving force, but we wrote it together and we were both in it. And uh, it's a cast of four. It's three men, one woman who plays all of the Bond girls, plus plus some of the femme fatales, plus sings the big opening number at the beginning. So Emily Tahini did it. Oh, wow. So brilliantly, she can do anything. And she does. She's just so fantastic. Um, and uh, so we race through them and we and the conceit of the show is this cast of four has to get through them all um, in the allotted time, otherwise something terrible happens. So it's, a, <laughs> okay. it's very much a race against time, as right. so many Bond films are. Mm. And uh, it's fast and it's furious and, and there's very low-fi props and it's, it's quite silly and uh, low-rent, but... Um, Hopefully very amusing. So how long was the length of that particular... Was it one hour that you had? Ideally. Um, it went longer sometimes. Well, no. It, it On the poster it says... On the poster it originally said in an hour and then we did a second season and I think we changed the poster to an hour and a bit. Right. Because you can't say exactly... It would, what would have been really cool is if it was 1007, uh, but um, it... I forget, I forget. It might have been an hour and 10, an hour and 15, something right. like that. It's a bit longer than a festival-length show. and um, But it is very fast moving from the uh, opening chase sequence to the um, double entendre at the very end. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> and all the, all the chases and all the special effects. And uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't let up. It, it's, it's a really fast-paced ride. And where did you perform that? We did that at Chapel Off Chapel here in Melbourne. Okay. Um, and, yeah, the first time around the cast was me, Michael Lawrence Mooney and uh, Emily Tahini in 2011. Then we revived it in, in 2012 with me, Michael, Ben Anderson and Emily again. And, uh, yeah, it it, uh, it went well. So we uh, we did record some we, – we hardly used the screen at all in the show, but we did record closing credits – and the very last image in the closing credits is Bondarama will return, dot, dot, dot. Right. Because as a nod to the James Bond film. So we may not have seen the last of Bondarama. <laughs> wow. Okay. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And with something like that, are you doing that show um, as a creative outlet uh, to make money, to have a bit of fun, a combination thereof? Oh, it's, we're not in it for the money. Um, which is just as well. Uh, <laughs> now, Michael and I bankrolled the thing, and uh, we didn't lose money. We didn't lose money, so that's breaking um, even is a success. Yeah, it yep. really is. Yep. It really is. And um, just creatively to to stretch ourselves and to see if audiences would get onto it, and they did. We we thought it would be a, an idea with appeal, and we backed ourselves. And because Wardy and I produced it as well, which is which was a, quite a learning curve. And, mm. and so we're wearing a lot of hats and I did the sound design. It was very much sort of everybody mucking in. Um, and I played, I, because as one of the co-writers, I can give myself the plum roles. Yes. So I gave myself Sean Connery, Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan. Of course. Of course. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so it, uh, again, a, a lot to learn, a lot of rapid fire sort of comic dialogue where the, your timing has to be just so and lots of costume changes and quick behind the scenes off again off stage back on again and you know all that sort of stuff great 
in a similar vein, uh, I'll get you to say the whole title, The Raiders Show. Mm. Can you give me the whole title? Certainly. Raiders of the Temple of Doom's Last Crusade. One man performs three Indiana Jones movies in an hour and a bit. And is that entirely your own concept? Yeah. Steven Spielberg has something to do with it, uh, and George apart Lucas. From, apart from them. <laughs> yeah, apart from them. Yeah, having having done Bondorama um, and also having been a fan of One Man Star Wars, which is Charles Ross, uh, the Canadian actor's show, where he does the original Star Wars trilogy by himself on stage <laughs> in, in about an hour playing all the characters, I wow. thought, because I'm such a fan of Indiana Jones, I thought, I wonder if I can do that with the Indiana Jones trilogy. Um, and... Before you ask about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, oh, sorry, there just wasn't time. Sorry, couldn't fit it in. Oh, that's no good. Just has to be Raiders, Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Sorry, Crystal Skull. Oh, that's no good. Were you asked much about that by fans of the franchise? Um, no, no. <laughs> Are you asking, did all the Crystal Skull fans come yeah, stampeding in? Yeah, three. No, no, they, they didn't bother me too much. Um <laughs> Yeah. So, and, but that was, uh, Charles Ross does it on stage just in himself in sort of, I think, one basic costume uh, with no props. And uh, I I sort of thought, uh, well, I'm going to try it with a few different props and things. And so what I did was I had um, a world map and a plane with a red texture strapped to it so that we could track Indies. Indies, High um, tech. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I had this steamer trunk made, and the steamer trunk uh, became a number of things. Uh, it, it, it held some props in it that I pulled out from time to time. It became the Ark of the Covenant. It became a speedboat. It became the mine car for the mine car chase. Um, and uh, it became tables and chairs and, and all sorts of things. Oh, it became a mountain for a tank to drive <laughs> off. So it, it's basically having this handful of props uh I also had a shadow puppet theatre, and so I did some very dodgy shadow puppetry for some of the bigger, Brilliant. more expensive action sequences. Fantastic. <laughs> and what kind of length of time is the from idea, the genesis, to creation, development, and then performing it? Um, I put it on in the 2013 Fringe Festival, which was, um, I think, August, September, September 2013, I think. Um all of this, by the way, is at Raiders of the Temple of Doom's Last Crusade dot com. If anyone's interested, I did do a little. I've done a little website, a little Brilliant. blog about it. Um, and so, from maybe maybe three or four months, I think, and I worked very closely with Russell Fletcher, who's brilliant Melbourne actor and director, mm. and um, he also directed Bondarama for us. And Russell and I. Um, that was a bit easy to re- organise the rehearsal schedule because there's just two of us. Right. So, so that was good in terms of organising rehearsal schedule, but um, he's contributed so much that I, I can never thank him enough. But, yeah, it was um, pretty intensive work. And I do remember thinking the first night before going on stage, well, if this doesn't work, this is going to be a long, cold, lonely hour and a bit out there. <laughs> You're not in your bedroom now, Poindexter. <laughs> you might think this is amusing, but what about them? <laughs> and it was a success. It worked, yeah, it worked, yeah. And you came back for the comedy festival, the International Comedy Festival in 2014. That's right. For a run of how long? Um, it would have been yeah, the three weeks. Um, pretty much the same show, hardly any tweaking, although because it was in a different room in a different venue at the start, I was able to do it, which I was really pleased with uh, before coming on at the very, very start. Like the audience comes in, they sit in their chairs, there's lots of jungle noises 
playing over the PA. Yeah. Because we're obviously we're about to go from the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and um, I was able to do this thing where at the very very start, before I even go on stage, they had a a, a scrim there, and I was able to get behind it and like do it like a silhouette of Indiana Jones, which you know, because <laughs> so often in the films we see a silhouette. Yes. And, uh, it's very iconic and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, we weren't able to do that the first time around. So there are a couple of little tweaks that we were able to do the second time around. So moving on now to TV, I'm going to list a whole heap of things. Okay. And, and you can tell me if I've got them right, if I've missed out anything. Okay. Neighbours, Flying Doctors, The Hollow Men, The King, Deal or No Deal, Backburner, Big Bite, Full Frontal, Spicks and Specks, Newstopia, Talking About Your Generation, Mad as Hell, Adam Hills Tonight, Australia's Got Talent, and Kitty is Not a Cat. Have I missed anything out there, do you think? Oh, there's a couple of things, but that's plenty to go on with. <laughs> yes. How did you, you were talking, obviously, Flying Doctors, we all grew up with that. How did you come on board that initially? Flying Doctors? Yeah. Um, that was that was late 80s, so a very different world. Crawford Productions was mm. still a thing and still a driving force in Australian drama. They had big studios out at Box Hill. And um, so there was some very long train trips out there and then a very long walk at the end of it. But you do a general Crawford's audition back yes. then. But this is around the time of the Henderson kids and uh, they, they were doing Flying Doctors. And um, I, when I got my first agent, they sort of sent me for all these things and just to sort of get, they could get me on tape and things. And um, uh, so I went out there and I did a, an audition for them. And it was a scene from the Henderson kids, the Henderson kids too. Um, and it went on their files and then later on I must have auditioned for it. But I, I was on Flying Doctors I think three times um, as a as a rookie cop and then as a bad-toothed hillbilly who, <laughs> whose father accidentally cuts his own leg off. Um, and I put it in the creek to keep it cold and then I lose it. It drifts away. And so I spend the episode around <laughs> scrabbling around in this freezing cold um Creek, and I only have one line in the whole show. Do you know what that, that line is? Please. <laughs> Found it! <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have that? Do I? I might have it somewhere. Oh, could you put it up somewhere I'll see for the world do. to see? <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Oh, my word. So how was that experience? <laughs> I don't think that you, even you could have written something that good. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> It was one of the lighter episodes of, of Flying Doctors. It was sort of played for laughs. And, um, no, no, it was, it was really fun. We, uh, there was me and my brother, um, and we both worked with our dad who was building a bridge with a chainsaw and he accidentally cut his own leg off. And uh, while we were well, – we, we found the leg, we put it in an esky and waited for the Flying Doctor to arrive. Mm. And while we were waiting, I remember Sophie Lee was a character in the show, yes. played a character in the show at the time. And there is a shot of us, the three of us, I think, sitting on or in front of or next to the esky, singing to pass the time, yes, Jesus loves me. (laughs) The Bible tells me so. This was the pinnacle of Australian television at Mm. the time, wasn't it? Where's my Logie? Where the hell is my Logie? The best hillbilly Christian in a supporting role. Oh, did you just think this is what I'm? This is what I've signed up for now. This is the the kind of roles that I'm going to be typecast. Mm. <laughs> is it well, young cop or bully or hillbilly yokel whose father's <laughs> accidentally <laughs> amputated his own leg? Um, it's pretty. It's niche, isn't it? <laughs> 
Very. When you entered the industry, you obviously started with acting, but did you have ideas or thoughts about uh, writing, about producing? Um, was that in your head or did you just kind of, did things just evolve and you were allowed opportunities and you went, yeah, I'll give that a go? Um, I'd always liked writing and performing and uh, I'd done performing since primary school and high school, amateur theatre and um, met Ben Mendelsohn, whoever he is. Yes. And um, we'll I'd, Google him and we'll, see, <laughs> see what he's done. Put him in the show notes. Um, and uh, after I left school, I used to go and see stand-up comedy a fair bit around uh, the Le Joke in Melbourne it was then and there were various venues around town and I, I thought, I reckon I could do that. Uh, and so I wrote some material and I went to a, an open mic tryout night at Le Joke in Collingwood um, a week before I turned 18 and um, it went well. And uh, Andrew Goodwin and Tim Smith took me under their wing and got me some other gigs and stuff, which was really lovely of them. And I'm still, yeah, very grateful to them to this day. And um, so I did stand up for a while. And also at the same time I was at I was at uni and met up with Vin Hedger, who uh, is a, was a former RMIT student and had a sister who worked at Triple R and at uni we started, we formed a little sketch group and did reviews and things like that and a few videos and then uh, through Vin's sister we got a radio show on Triple R, uh, Graveyard Shift, Sunday mornings, two to six, a young man's game, very much a young man's game. And uh, Someone's actually on air at that time. Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. still? Does that still happen? I think so. Really? Yeah, people who just love radio and are keen mm. and... And that was a great training ground because we would write and perform stuff each week and uh, no one was listening so we could make mistakes. And, good. And yes, it is good. And you did. And we did. And we did. And we learned. And uh, then he was also involved with early days of RMITV and RMITV, we started doing sort of really finding our way doing no budget tonight shows and, and that sort of stuff And because they had the facility and we just were keen and interested and... Um, and then Channel 31 came along and our show sort of became part of Channel 31. And so we did a show on Triple R for four years from 89 to 93. And then we started doing public TV um, and we had a show called Under Melbourne Tonight, which ran, <laughs> ran for quite a while on Channel 31. Um, and we, at the same time, did a couple, we invented a game show called What's Going On There? Uh, <laughs> Tell me about that premise. What's going on there? Mm. What's going on there? It was me and Rastus. That's Finn Hedges' stage name. Um, oh, probably given away a trade secret. Now. <laughs> um, uh, hosting a show, there was two panels of three, and it was like parlor games. It's like so many English panel shows and things that have happened since then. Um, and we team captains were Bernie Carpet, who was on Channel Thirty One at the time in a show called Richmond Three One Two One Zero, and. Uh, <laughs> Corinne Grant, who was uh, doing lots of stand-up around that time. So two team captains, two guests each week sitting on couches and we would ask them quiz and game show questions and things. Uh, we also had a spin-off show, a talk show called Who's Shout? And Who's Shout set, was set in a fictional pub where uh, called the Stumpy Arms. <laughs> and uh, 
we we were behind the bar asking people, you know, and the guests would just come up to the bar and we'd we'd be behind the bar asking them questions. And then when their interview time was up, um, they'd be called into the bistro because their schnitzel was ready. Brilliant. And so that's how we. Oh, it's been great talking to you. Oh, yeah, got to go. Sorry. <laughs> and the um, and the the house band had a residency. No, they were trying out each week, but then we, we gave them a red, residency. And the Stumpy Arms is in a different suburb each week for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, and this all happened before you were aged what? Um, we were in a before. Yeah, good question. Thanks very much. Thank you. Oh, uh, before I was twenty-five, I guess we were doing all this in our twenties. Yeah. And at this time, how were you paying the bills? Um, I uh, I was uh, I worked at Australia Post for quite a long time. Right. I, I started off there. Uh, I was you know I was on the after. After uni, I qualified to be a teacher. I got my dip ed because it's nice to have something to fall back on. But I had such a miserable time doing the dip ed and it wasn't for me and I wasn't for it. And uh, I never did fall back on it. I never did teaching. Um, but then a friend of mine who worked at Australia Post got me a job as a cleaner at Australia Post. So uh, I did that for quite a while. And then um, I got bumped up to working on the counter at Australia Post. Okay. And then I got bumped up again to uh, being a postie at Australia Post because um, that's sort of the plum job at Australia Post because mm. you start early, you stack, you, you sort your mail, you're out on the bike and you finish by two. And uh, um, So I was a postie there for quite a while until I was able to leave and I got a full-time gig writing on Denise, I think. Yeah, afternoon show, but I, at the same... While I was a postie, I was writing for Full Frontal and also in Melbourne, in Melbourne tonight, in '96 and '97. But I was finally able to leave when I got a full-time job. How did that first writing gig come about? Because obviously, you start off with your acting, and you actually—it's like you're adding layers to your um, to your CV. Suddenly, you're doing some writing. When did that first occur? That's a good question. Dave O'Neill, bless him. Dave O'Neill, and it came about sort of, I think, through doing stand-up at the time and through doing the Channel 31 show. We'd have guest comedians, and, and we'd have guest comedians on our radio show all the time as well. And so we were moving in those circles and sort of everyone knew everyone. And uh, Rassus and I were very keen to do writing for TV, of course we were. And back then, Full Frontal was quite a popular, it was a very popular show, a weekly hour-long sketch comedy show on Channel 7. And Dave O'Neill was one of the head writers then, was he? Yeah, I think he was head writer. And they had two openings for very, very um, sm- small positions for writers, for, for contributing writers. And back then they had this system, which doesn't exist anymore, of minutes of material. So you would be you would be on X amount of minutes and you would be paid for that each week, but you're expected to produce more than that on the understanding that that's about the amount of minutes of your material that will go to air. So what you had to produce um, writing-wise, how much would actually go to air generally? Yeah, right. Um, or what was expected probably mm. is more is more the question to ask because uh, I, I – yeah. I don't think that was ever spelled out to us, but we wanted to be diligent and we were dead keen, of course, and we wanted to uh, be sort of hard workers and, and increase chances of stuff getting through. We were both put on the contract for half a minute a week. Okay. And as in 30 seconds, uh, yeah, you listeners know what 30 seconds are. <laughs> you listeners know how much half a minute is. Yes. It, it can be a long time. Yes, in politics. Um, and so... One one of the, the ways that we got through was uh, each week the show had a news segment, which is two newsreaders sort of doing 
news gags about stuff that happened in the week, but also more multi-purpose ones. And I managed to get a foot in the door and get some stuff on by doing those tiny little uh, turn of phrase proverb ones that they do at the end of the news, like light relief. So after the weather, but just before the sign off. Mm. Well, they say every dog has its day, but here's such and such this dog and uh, okay. you know the, the dog on a surfboard news. Yes, and um, so I, I still remember one of them that I that got through, and it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, good, yeah, now this is the I'm on the right track because, and I, and I got a real buzz out of watching John Walker, who played the newsreader, doing it. And um, the line was, and it's just before they say goodnight and shuffle their papers and the lights go down. (laughs) And it was, well, it was smiles all round today for a Mill Park man with a face on each side of his head. (laughs) And it's an economical joke, you know. It's not a a huge investment of your time. Um, So there there were those ones and... And so they were my sort of bread and butter and, and I came back for the second year in 97, which unfortunately was the final year of that show. Um, but, yeah, I, we would go in there to each record and watch Sean, for instance, and watch everyone, Kitty and uh, Eric Banner, and uh, just sit up there in the writer's room marvelling at it and just being so pleased to be on the inside. And did you love the fact that you were now, I guess, embraced as a writer to, yeah. to add to your arsenal? Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, you know, this was like dream come true stuff. This was no longer on the outside looking in. This was, uh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, you know, and it's not easy to get in. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just wanted more and more of it. I wish I, I wish I had more than half a minute. And, and of course, there's the, there's the, um, the bitter writer saying, uh, oh, that bit was crap. Why do they put their stuff on and not my stuff? Not knowing, of course, that there's a number of reasons in the commercial practicalities of producing an hour of, well, 40, 42 minutes of, mm. of commercial content every week. But just, um, yeah, how dare they o- overlook my unsullied genius. <laughs> <clears throat> Australia's Got Talent was one of the shows that we've worked on together. Yes, there you go. Um, first tell, series. First it series. was the first series, yeah. yeah. It was uh, Mr. Dania. And what did you uh, – your role as a writer on that, were you writing everything that he said that went to air? No, because he's really good and he's really good ad libber and he's, he's a very smart man. But um, it was I, – I, I, the role of a writer on a show like that is – the traffic direction and, you know, back after the break and up next is and and sometimes they have to explain the rules of the show and, and they have to. Um, and so it can be pretty thankless and not especially creative, but it just needs, you know, there's a number of boxes that need to be ticked and from time to time you get to be a little bit poetic or creative or funny or clever or classy. But um, he, or punny, sometimes people like puns, mm. um, but he's, he's really, you know, he's such a, a savvy media creature that he he knows his brand for want of a better word and uh, he can express himself very eloquently but um I, I was just there giving him a helping hand and a you know pat on the back and yeah one of my roles on that during the record days was to make sure Danny Minogue had um, a can of diet coke in front of her oh yes very good and I'm happy to say that um, I was really good excellent at, at that job 
Did she have to? Was it? Did it have to be on display for sponsorship purposes? Or I don't think it was. No, right. um, but that was her brand um, of was soft she, drink. Was she a brand ambassador by any chance? No, not at that point in time. No, okay. and this is, I think, before brand ambassadors became a thing. Sure. as well. Now. When you're writing on something like that, as you said, it's almost like you're ticking legal boxes in some kind of ways. Um, did you find that frustrating or you're just kind of going, oh, I'm getting paid as a writer, but I'm not really doing the writing I want to do? There's, there's, a, there's a number of gigs where it's just, it's, it's great to be paid as a writer for television. And yeah, it, it ain't Shakespeare. And, and you, if, if you get frustrated, you're on a hiding to nothing. It's not going to change for you. So it is what it is and you have to be adaptable and fit into the different slots. And uh, I remember <clears throat> thinking and, and putting this thought into practice at other times where a really, really hard day on Spamalot, there was one day it was in summer and the air conditioning had broken down and we all wear huge layers of costumes and stuff and there's <clears throat> lots of costume changes and you're running around and it's really fast and I remember going to do a costume change and running past one of the other actors and he was saying, okay, I'm now officially not enjoying this. And <laughs> yeah, good on you, mate. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, the very, very worst day of this is 100 times better than the best day at Australia Post. And right. No offence to Australia Post. No. But for me... For all our Australia Post listeners. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. But Australia Post is just not where I want to be and it's not a yep. fit for me and I'm not a good fit for it. But, um, yeah, the, the worst day on something like that beats, not, beats being somewhere where you're not meant to be, you know? Tell me about Deal or No Deal and your involvement from uh, when you first jumped on the show. Hmm. Deal or No Deal, uh, I was there from the beginning of it in Australia. I was invited along by Michael Bowgen, who was one of the producers who I'd worked with previously uh, on writing scripts and questions for a game show called Shafted. Mm. Uh, I was there for the entire... Cornelia Francis? No, um, just the way I walk. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, no, um, you're thinking of the weakest link. Um, could, uh, Shafton was hosted by Red Simon. Oh, yes, yes. I was there for the entire six weeks and it was, um, yeah, it wasn't a, a long-lived uh, adventure. Okay. But Michael Bowden produced that and I was finishing up, Big Bite was finishing up, it must have been 2003 and we were around there and he was starting up on this and he said, I'm going to have a chat to you about this show. And they had only then just got the rights to it from Endemol in the Netherlands. And the deal or no deal started life as a segment on a huge Saturday night extravaganza show that they had on Dutch TV, funded by the state lottery or something. But it was like a three-hour-long variety show, and one segment of it or part of it was this game, deal or no deal. And then it was to be adapted, and I think Australia might have been... The first, that might have been the second territory outside the Netherlands that had it. I do remember um, it, it started life here on a Sunday night at 7.30 and we, it was up to us to sort of tweak the format and the format was weird and we couldn't quite fit it into the hour of commercial television and so sometimes you'd get an episode which had one and a half games in it. Yes. And sometimes you'd get a, one that played out nicely and it had a whole game in it and sometimes... You get one and a third games. And, and so that hour time slot was problematic. And then, but they commissioned a second series, if I remember rightly, and then it went down to 
Stevie Stevie K. Murray, who is executive producer on the show and now is a network executive at Channel 7, um, and I, and some, I think there's some others involved too, but I do have strong memories of me and Stevie sort of trying to work out turning it from an hour into half an hour. So it could be stripped five nights a week, Monday to Friday at their 5.30 slot. Uh, and eventually we got there and did it, and that became the template for Deal or No Deal around the world. Wow. I think, and look, I, I, I hope I'm not sort of arrogantly misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that we were the first to do a half-hour stripped version of Deal or No Deal, and then uh, America and England and various territories around the world, which it's still going somewhere in the world now. So what was your role on Deal or No Deal? I started out writing and writing uh, questions for it and also uh, material for Andrew O'Keefe, the host. And then later on, might have been series two or three, I don't remember exactly, but um, they made me a producer, which was, yeah, a, a, a bit more all-encompassing, uh, as you know. And that's sort of, oh, that's the, the biggest sort of TV producing job I've I've done. I was a segment producer on the Adam Hill show, mm. um, which was just responsible for beginning, middle and end of various segments or games or ideas for the show, but not the whole show itself. And yeah, Dylan, I know Stevie K. Murray taught me so much and I still I still put a lot of those principles into practice these days. I learned a lot. Really valuable. So there's a big difference. There are quiz shows and there are game shows. Temptation, Sale of the Century, was a quiz show. A game show is something where most of it is an element of luck. Would you agree with that kind of analysis? I guess. I, I think I, the way the distinction that I make, I would say Price is Right is is a game show, but you still need to know stuff. You need to know what things cost and stuff. I think quiz shows just basically are questions being asked, often usually general knowledge, asked and answered and points gained for answers, whereas I, I would call Wheel of Fortune a game show, not a quiz show. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I just... That's how I distinguish masterminds of quiz show, obviously. Questions asked and answered, that's my definition. So deal or no deal would be a game show because you you answer three questions and hopefully you get those right. But once you're up there with Andrew O'Keefe, it's just about briefcases. It's a guessing game really, isn't it? It's a blind guessing game and if you can count from one to 26, you're fine. That's all you need to be able to do. Which happened most of the time. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, the contestants were able to count that high, yes. Deal or No Deal was my second um, role in, in TV. Right. And my I started as a contestant coordinator. I was just on the floor yep. uh, marshalling the troops. But I moved into basically the art department somehow where That's it, right. it was me and Kirky in a locked-off room with the 26 briefcases and we had to put all the foam inserts in that. And And the amounts. And the amounts. That's exactly right. So we had that pre-existing list that was printed out for each particular episode. Mm -hmm. Only we were allowed to look at that, um, the two of us. And once we loaded up the briefcases, we had to secretly transport that up into the control room and give it to a producer, which was sometimes you. Right. Um, it was a very interesting thing. You expect something like that to be kind of Fort Knox, but it's it's really you're in a locked room in a Channel 7 green room with, you know, uncomfortable couches and sticky carpet. But yeah. that whole process was very interesting to me and seeing the whole uh, control room 
the setup of it up there, and that's when you and I first crossed paths for the first time. Um, it's one of those kind of wow, this is how TV works kind of moments. What were your kind of you? You said you learned a lot from Stevie K. Murray. What did you learn? Um, just the the roles and the responsibility of a producer and of the the buck stops here nature of it, and just getting things done, being decisive, not being wishy-washy, making decisions. And, and it's fine to say, I don't know. If, if there's something you don't know the answer to, you can just say, look, I don't know. I'll find out. I'll get back to you at this time or by this time. And there's no shame in that. And then not to, not to bluster and bluff your way through. You can, it's perfectly fine to say, no, uh, I don't know, but I'll find out. And also just how to deal with people and how to get the best out of people and how to ask people to do things for you. Uh, uh, it was just a real sort of um, professional maturity that uh, I hadn't really had to think about or or, or, or consider, and a, and a way of even comporting yourself too. It was, um, yeah, it was quite a quite a quite a growing up exercise. Yeah, I was, I was extremely say. mature. Before that. <laughs> I was going to say, did it feel like you were a grown up at that time? At last, with responsibilities. Yeah, and and to not let people down, and to to be that sort of leadership role and that was something and as I say I think I said to you earlier I've carried that into other things and I remember thinking about that a lot when I was doing Faulty Towers and in rehearsals and it was really hard and there were times when I just wanted to just go home and crawl up curl up and go into bed Mm. because you're just exhausted and and you're getting you're getting bumped and bruised as well because it's such a physical thing and Mm. uh, but I just thought no come on you're driving the bus come on People that people and people were following my example, a bit right? Because you know I was the leading man, for, <laughs> for want of a better term. Given your history with quiz and game shows, yes, and um, the potential success and popularity of a lot of them, is there something in your future that suggests that you? might or have been developing your own quiz show or game show that might appear on national television? And and, and probably if it's a yes, then great, but obviously you can't even talk about it. (laughs) But is that something that crosses your mind when you are involved in that sphere, um, knowing the history that you've got and the the wealth of knowledge that you are? That's an interesting question. Uh, A a few years ago, we... I met someone who uh, is a is a producer and was in, involved an Australian working in LA who's, who's involved with producers over there and it was at a at a time when there was a bit of a and still is of course a reality TV boom and so they were here in Australia and they said hey have you got any ideas and I said yeah <laughs> of course I have um, and they said oh we're going back to LA on Saturday. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Show us what you got. And I said, Yeah, I will. I just have to go home and get it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I thought reality TV, reality TV, and I came up with an idea for reality TV show, and uh, you know, a, a big one that could be scalable, and it, ha- it had lots of different elements. And uh, it was, I, I was really sort of quite excited about it because it could be quite holistic, and it could be quite philosophical, and even quite anti-reality show in that it was a show that cared about its contestants becoming better people, not worse. Uh, And I got quite excited about it and I 
gave it to them. I wrote it all up and I gave it to them and they didn't have any luck or, or whatever. And it didn't go anywhere. Then um, I pitched it to a big production company here who I was working with at the time and they said uh, no and I was quite crestfallen. They said, no, I can't see it working. People like shows about cooking and renovations and because mm. everyone can relate to that because everyone does that. And uh, Do you? Oh, yeah, I do a bit of cooking, but I don't watch any of those shows. Mm, mm. And uh, so, because this was a bit more sort of high concept than that, and it was more about, it was a bit more hopefully character building or some such. Um, highfalutin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and so they they said no to it, and then I pitched it. Oh, we were in LA, and I got a meeting with the reality TV person over there of this of the LA branch of this big, enormous, you know, global uh, studio um, who, who makes loads of TV all over the world. And they'd just started and I was really nervous to do the pitch, you know, because I'm actually in LA pitching to one of these people. And I was really nervous and eventually I went in there and they said, okay, so who are you? What are you doing? Oh, you've done your homework. Thanks for that. Um <laughs> So I pitched it and they said, thanks, but no. Oh, and then afterwards, nothing. And I get in touch with them, nothing. I get in touch with them, nothing. I get in touch with them. Oh, sorry, it's not for us. Okay, fair enough. And now it's it's there and it's in my bottom drawer now, but I think its time has passed. It's given the zeitgeist at the moment. It's really not something it would come under fire for various reasons. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it was very much something that... If it if it would have worked, it would have worked five years ago. Right, and, and okay. It won't, and it won't work now. And okay. I can't I can't foresee a time when it will. So, yeah, I, and it was fun to develop. It was just fun to do anything creative and thinking outside the box and pushing yourself a bit in an area where you haven't before and ironing out all those kinks and stuff. But that's as close as I've come in answer to your question. And have you buried that for good then? <clears throat> I think I have. Okay, okay. Musicals. Now, you and I talked uh, some time ago. We uh, sat down in a meeting with... Um, I'd forgotten about this. Yeah, <laughs> go on. ..with a musician, um, and we talked about the possibility of using uh, his music yeah. uh, from a popular band uh, as part of a jukebox musical. Yes. Um, that's all we can say about that, but it never came to fruition. I don't think it was the right time for both of us, not necessarily him. Uh, do you think that's something that we could uh, re-explore? That's interesting. Yeah, it was, um, It was, as you say, a jukebox musical. I'd, I'd been to see uh, Mamma Mia and the stage show, not the appalling movie. <laughs> uh, or I totally agree with your opinion on that. I enjoyed the stage show, uh, the movie. Oof. What happened there? I'm embarrassed for all of them. <laughs> uh, watch the first five minutes of the sequel. Why, why did you even do that? Uh, my daughter wanted to watch it. Uh, okay. And, um, wow, I've, <laughs> do you want me to hate you all? I mean, you're going out of your way to make me hate you. and I, It's work and a treat. Why do you... It's a solemn graduation ceremony and you do a strip tease and dance around singing and I kiss the teacher. And, oh, God. <laughs> and everyone joins in. Eesh. Anyway, um, we... <laughs> oh, I can't tell you how much I hated it. I had a, quite a visceral reaction to it. We'll do a podcast about that one day. Mamma Mia, the movie. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, why, can we say the name of the... Should we, 
No, no, we won't say the name okay, of the band. Sure. It was a popular Australian band from uh, some time ago. Yes. With a, with a catalogue of hits. And uh, I uh, got a meeting with um, someone at the record company who holds their back catalogue and, and that person at the record company put me in touch with the main songwriter from the band and, yes, we met the songwriter and I came up with a, a concept, a, a two-act play, which sort of the first act and the second act were more sort of mirrors of each other in a way, I guess, and slotted all the, the songs, not all the songs, but some of the big ones in and um, he seemed to like it. He, I think he, he, his reaction to it was pretty pretty positive it just sort of went away I don't, I don't remember how that came to an end do you? It, it, well I, I think we just got busy with other things but I unlike your reality TV show concept that you think the time has passed mm. uh, I think from my personal opinion that mm. this musical is um, is ready um, so if you feel like re-exploring that, um, we'll then... Talk, we'll talk off here. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yep. But, look, I had... If that doesn't come off, um, I had a few ideas that we could, you know, maybe uh, combine our musical theatre talents. Right. We could write a jukebox musical. And let's just define this. A jukebox musical is something like Mamma Mia, where you're using the songs of an existing band, um, musician, slash artist, like Mamma Mia or Crazy For You, the Gershwin brothers. Right. You know, a musical was made of their music with a script interwoven, a narrative mm. interwoven, whereas you've got the bio musicals, which are things like Jersey Boys yep. and Buddy, uh, Buddy and Holly. beautiful, the Carol King one. Yep, yep, exactly. So we're talking about jukebox musicals, but what, what about this? Pseudo Echo, Funky Town. What do, you, what do you think? Ooh, and gee. basically, these all have to say Funky Town, the musical. There always yeah. has to be and two exclamation marks. Do you see that working? I love it. I love it. And I can see, like the, I can see that the band uh, are all, you know, they're young, struggling artists. I think it's a biopic of Pseudo Echo. Is it? Yeah, I think so. And they live uh, in a place that's actually called Funky Town. Good. And they, they don't have two synthesizers to rub together. And it's about their rags to riches story. Yes. And to get the hell out of Funky Town. <laughs> And then at the end, they realise how far they've come and all the glitz and the glamour and the trappings. And so there's a very poignant moment where they long for days gone by <laughs> and they're in the lounge at Vegas and uh, with, you know, the untied bow tie and the, um, you know, the glass of scotch in one hand sitting and the lead singer of Pseudo Echo. He's only got a tiny, tiny Casio on his lap. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> And he's, he gets sentimental and longs for the simpler days when they had the DX7s and, uh, and sings a very poignant lounge version of Won't You Take Me <laughs> to Funky Town. And I also see towards the end, um, maybe halfway through Act 2, mm-hmm. um, when we're getting a little bit, um, when we're thinking about what is what we've, the journey we've gone through, yep. um, one of the characters has some kind of uh, fight with a fellow band member mm-hmm. um, and he says, I say... You say, weren't you listening? Now it's too late. You're, You're not, not listening. listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, but does he realise his mistake and then realise the error of his ways and he has to admit to himself, there's a beat for you in my heart. <laughs> the other thing too at the start, when they're, when they're poor and they're down on their luck um, and they, they hate Funky Town, they don't want to be in Funky Town. Who, who, who wants to be there? No way. That, that means misery for them. Yep. Simple Harmless misery for them. Yes, that's why they get nostalgic for it later on. But yes. at the start, like the, I think the first 
as the lights come up and they're there in their, you know, singlets and they've, they've hardly got enough hair gel even to get full lift. And they are just yearning and looking at the horizon saying, got to make a move to a town that's right for me. <laughs> a town to keep it moving, keep it grooving with some energy. The good well, thing they've is... Talked about, they've talked about, talked about it, talked about it. They keep on talking I about know. it. They've got to do it. I'm a proud owner of... Um, the extended version, Greatest Hits, awesome. uh, Pseudo Echo. There's yeah. eight tracks on it. So we yeah. look at this as being kind of a two-thirds of an act musical. But <laughs> something that has more legs would be Hall & Oates, Private Eyes, the musical. Mm. But how about this one? This is gold. I think we're on a winner with this. Uncanny X-Men, 50 years. <laughs> now, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I might have to... Uncanny X-Men had 50 years, of course. Yes. That's where they gather around the table and raise their champagne in the air. Correct. But um, they also had Everybody Wants to Work. That's right. No, the, no, not me. Yeah, not Brian. No. Everybody Wants to Work with the exception of Brian, the lead singer. Correct. And also the party, what we're going to do, where we're going to, when the party's through. Yes. Too early to go home, too late to be alone, what we're going to do when the party's through. Exactly. And then they also went down to Pakistan. Did they? Yeah. Everybody's talking about the women down in Pakistan. <laughs> What song is that? It's called Pakistan. I think it's a cover. It's from Salive One, and it's a live album that they had. Clearly I need to research that one a little bit, but mm. 50 years, you've recently turned 50. Oh, nice segue. <laughs> Do you like sorry. that? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. Yep. Now, mm. the 50 years that you've already had yes. uh, on this earth. Yes, Lee. <laughs> what is it now? <laughs> what does the future hold for the next 50 years for you? Oh, crikey. Um, the next 50 years. Well, here's the thing. I've, because I have had this big milestone approaching and um, bearing down on me with great ferocity, I've been um, trying to, my own little midlife crisis, uh, I've been doing lots of exercise and trying to get really fit and healthy. Um, but also I had this idea uh, about oh, three or four months ago. I've always wanted to write a novel. I've never written a novel, never got around to it. Uh, and I... Uh, I thought, okay, this might be the year to do it. From 2019 to 2020, I'm going to write a novel. How about this? Uh, there is a thing called NaNoWriMo, which is short for National Novel Writing Month, which happens every November, uh, in which it's a, it's a global phenomenon, um, a non-profit where they just challenge people to write, I think it's 60,000 words in the month, 60,000 or 70,000 words in the month of November, and everyone supports each other, and it's... It's a sort of a race against time, but it's just about getting your first draft out there. I tried that a few years ago and it didn't work. I couldn't keep up with the pace. So Really? Yeah. So Because you have to write nearly 2,000 words every day. Okay. You know, and it's just life gets in the way. Mm. So I tweaked the idea of that. And what I'm doing is I'm, I am writing a novel and releasing one chapter every week for a year online. And every Friday at midday... I will release a 2,000-word chapter from May 2019 to May 2020. At the end of that, I will have a 104,000-word novel. It's a serialised novel like Charles Dickens used to do, and he didn't even have a WordPress blog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. Good point. Good point. Good point. Um, so that's what I'm doing, and it's, and it's really scary. I'm really scared by it, but it's good to do things that scare you. So... How do you put aside the time to do that? Well, 
I'm planning it all out in advance. So I've got the Lindex cards and, you know, this happens in this chapter this, and I've got all these charts of who my characters are and what happens to who and when and all that. So it, it is all sort of mapped out. But my own challenge to myself is to uh, come up with a new chapter every week, 52 chapters. So um, as much planning as I can do, and and I I freely admit that I'm hoping to get ahead. I'm hoping to have a few chapters up my sleeve because life will get in the way. Mm. So there's going to be purple patches where I'm churning out a lot, and that's good because that stands me in good stead for the next month or whatever. But um, but I have to stay the course because I'm telling everyone about it, and I have to be accountable. And this is why I'm telling you and your listeners right now, um, so that I have to keep it up. And because I thought. If I have to keep the promise that I'm making to everyone, that's a good kick up the behind to uh, keep me going and doing it. How do we find that? Thank you very much. It's at thestephenhall.com. And uh, it's thestephenhall.com, all one word, and there's a page on there about the serialised novel. And uh, and you are a PH, a Stephen with a PH. How dare you, sir? <laughs> I've never been a PH in my life. Let me slap you. <laughs> You are um, the yes. Stephen Hall with a P-H. Correct. T-H-E-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-H-A-L-L.com. Great. That sounds great. Now, I've got to lastly tell you, you're the only guest that I've had on this podcast series mm. who has their own iPhone app. Oh, yes. You told me about that when we were on set right. um, of Now Add Honey, the feature film. Oh, my goodness, And you yes. came out for the day. And that was just in development at that time. Tell me what's happened with that and what it's called and the premise. Sure, sure. Um, that uh, We got it made. I, I don't know the first thing about making an app, but a friend of mine works in IT, and so he and I collaborated and he uh, had really held my hand through the whole sort of designing and how you go about creating something uh, in this space. Um, we hired a, uh, an app developer online after sc- screening through, you know, just an online hi- hiring place. What was it? I forget what it was called now. Um, but we interviewed loads of people and rejected them all. And finally, we found someone right for our needs. They made it. Um, we uploaded it to the Apple Store. It, it was on the Apple Store. Um, it, it's not there now. So it's not... It's not available at the moment. Uh, the website still exists. but and Did you forget to pay the credit card bill last month? <laughs> no. No, it uh, – well, the, the, the app was called Step by Step Story and it's a two-player game where people write a story back and forth together one paragraph at a time. Um, and it had a pretty good take-up. Uh, the design was very simple. It didn't look slick and shiny. It didn't look that great, but we got it built. We got it done. And um, we got a um, couple of thousand users who seemed to like it. Um, the Apple Store need uh, apps to be updated from time to time and, you know, refreshed and all that sort of stuff. And the last time around, and otherwise they pull them off the store because they're a bit old and creaky. Right, okay. And so it, it was as simple as that. So uh, it's, it's not available at the moment, um, but we... When I get round to it, uh, it's one of the many sort of uh, pies that I have fingers in. Um, we want to revisit it, and I've, um, as luck would have it, an app developer's moved in two doors down from me, and I've told him about it, and he said, come over, tell us about it. Brilliant. And uh, so it's dormant, shall we say. Okay. Uh, but it, it was a thing, we got it made, and uh, I'm really pleased and proud that we did 
get it made. So far outside my comfort zone. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know about that sort of stuff. Um, but as with so many things, it comes down pr- to promotion and marketing, which again mm. is not my strong suit. Uh, so, <laughs> so it sort of. It's, you can have the best app in the world, but if no one knows about it, then mm, that's exactly right. Mm. One last thing: how is it? Um, how is it to talk about yourself? You're a, you're quite a humble man. Mm, mm. Um, how is it to go through your life and the career that you've had, and um, I, I suppose explain what you've done, but also uh, I suppose portray information about your life, what your journey's been like. Is that is that a weird thing? As an actor, <laughs> I love talking about myself. And I very much enjoyed this first part of our 10-part interview, Luke. <laughs> um, no, it's, 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 fun. it's fun to reminisce and to, and to, yeah, you've reminded me of a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, you know, you, current concerns, you know, do occupy our time and it's, it's nice to step back and uh, relive some of these things. Yeah, the music, I, I hadn't thought about the musical for a very long time, for instance. Yeah. No, I've enjoyed it very much. I love talking about myself. Uh, and this is my wife uh, often, if ever I start talking about acting, she walks out the room. <laughs> She's, she works with a lot of actors and, you know, uh, I, I won't say all actors are self-obsessed and love talking about themselves to the exclusion of all else, probably only about 90%. <laughs> So that's been her experience, and as soon as I even start to talk about any work, that see you, bye. Okay, she's gone. She's gone. She's out of the room. Thank you very much for appearing on the show. Our um, our friendship has gone on for oh, a very long time, 18 years, something like that. So when was the first time? Was it on Deal or No Deal? Or deal? No deal? Yeah. So that would be 2003, something like that? 16 years, yes, that's right. 2003, Deal or No Deal. Crikey. That's when our paths first crossed, and I... Uh, would go home after talking to you and I'd need to get uh, my neck looked at because you're so tall. Oh, right. Yes. Who looked at your neck? (laughs) (laughs) Anyone. Uh, Anyone who I asked. We bonded over gold briefcases. There we are. We did. Mm. So Only 26 of them, though. No, exactly. No more than 26. No. Um, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Your friendship's been great over the years. Um, Our paths cross intermittently, but it's, you know, just like yesterday um, when we see each other each time. So I appreciate the information, um, your time appearing on the show. And, um, yeah, let's talk musicals. (laughs) Yes, off air, mind you. Off air, of course. Thanks very much, Luke. It's been really fun. No worries. And we'll be back next time for another episode of The Artiste. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground. Mm.